0: so good to be with you all. You may be seated. I love this church. I love John and Nancy. Uh, I just want to brag on you all for a second because I have the privilege of going around to uh, lots of churches here in South Florida and I want to just share with you that the reputation of this church is beautiful. What God is stewarding here at Greenhouse is rippling throughout South Florida. Not only your generosity, but what this church is known for in this community. And even right here in Western High School, the story of how y'all have loved on this school and adopted this school is cascading throughout all of Broward County and the school system. So you have so much to be proud of as a local church. So give yourself a round of applause. But as, uh, as we just talked about, I lead a unity movement. Uh, I get churches to work together, to view each other as co-laborers rather than competition. And when I jump on an airplane and someone asks me you know, in small talk, what do you do? I say, yeah, I, I lead a unity movement. And, and they look at me, usually if they're not a Christian, they go, you mean churches don't work together? Like You see, the, the lost, our unsaved friends and neighbors assume that local churches work with one another, that they love one another, that they, that they speak well of one another. So now on an airplane, I say, uh, yeah, uh, I actually heard wet cats in a minefield. And they look at me and they go, what? I said, well, well, you know how like cats don't like water? Yeah. Well, you know what makes a minefield dangerous? Well, yeah, I guess, because you don't know where the mines are. Well, that's what I do. I get pastors to work together. I heard wet cats in a minefield. And they put their little ear pods back on. They go, yeah, that's nice. And then we can go back to our movie. But you see this idea of unity. You see, unity is a really popular idea. We like to talk about unity, and I'm gonna jump out of your series just here for a minute, because I've been doing a lot of guest preaching at some local churches here this summer, and I texted John on his burner phone while he's on sabbatical and I said, Hey, would it be okay if I jumped out of Matthew and just kind of shared my heart as I had some observations of the Capital C church? And he said, Absolutely. So we're actually gonna talk about unity. We're gonna talk about what it means to be a Christian because I'm hearing more and more in churches we like talking about unity. Every politician for the last 30 years has what? They've run on a platform of uniting a deeply divided nation. Whether they're running for city council or whether they're running for state government or federal government, they're talking about we gotta come together, we gotta be one, we gotta be united. Any Queen Latifah fans here? Yeah, okay, thank you, I'm not alone. Queen Latifah in her 1993 hit song sang about it. She sang, You and I, TY. Rodney King, after he recovered from his horrific police beatings, he got on the national TV and he looked right into the camera and he asked that famous question. Anyone remember? Why can't we all just get along? After the Second World War, 51 countries came together to say, never again, we got to connect, and we got to collaborate, we got to work together. These 51 countries came together and they formed the United Nations because they discovered that there is power in unity, that there's power in a shared voice, there's power in collaboration, there's strength in it. But you see, from politics to hip hop, everybody loves this idea of unity. Everyone is asking the question, why can't we all just get along? And friends, I wish that that is a question that the local church, the local people of God here in South Florida and across our nation had a better answer to. I really do. But it would seem that the vast majority of our churches, the vast majority of Christians are anything but united. We're divided. We're divided by what? We're divided by mutual suspicion of each other. We're divided by race. We're divided by gender. We're divided by political affiliation. But this morning, I didn't come to talk about politics or hip-hop. This morning, we've come to open up the Scriptures. We've come to open up the Word of God and explore why the unity of the church, the unity of God's people, is perhaps one of the greatest apologetics that we could offer to our lost friends, neighbors, coworkers, and cities. And if you're okay with it, uh, I shared this in the morning prayer time. I don't have a three-point sermon. I've done something a little different here. Uh, This is more of a family conversation. Can we have an honest family conversation as the people of God this morning? Is that okay? All right, if you've been around church for a while, you're like, oh, man, this is fixing to be a long sermon. He doesn't have three points. I won't hold you hostage that long. I promise. I promise. But listen, we're going to come together as the people of God this morning. We're going to have a little conversation. And I want us to picture here in this sanctuary, I want us to think of this as a living room. And we're going to come together around the table. And here's, let's set the table. Let's talk about who we're going to have around the table, okay? Here's what we're going to have around this table. We're going to have our crazy uncle around the table. Anybody got a crazy uncle? I got a crazy uncle. His name's Uncle Dave. He's in Alabama. Trust me. Guys, He's watching. You're crazy, all right? Got a crazy uncle. So we're going to have him around the table. We're gonna have our distant cousins. We're gonna have our conservative mom. We're gonna have our mask wearing dad. We're gonna have our Fox News loving grandma, our MSNBC Morning Joe fan son in law. We're gonna have our anti vaccine aunt. We're gonna have our climate change advocate niece, and we're gonna have our fake news loving nephew all around the table because all of these people claim to follow Jesus Christ. They claim to be Christians. We're going to sit together around this table and we're going to be reminded about our family name. We're going to be reminded about our family story, our history, and our calling. And we're going to be reminded about who we are, who we belong to, and what that means for us as we leave out this morning as the people of God here in South Florida. So enter now the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, having written this letter of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. And he's writing this book from a very strange location. He's writing it from a prison cell. And I'm going to be honest, if I, had, if I ever got locked up, I'm not going to be taking a moment to write about my heart for unity. I'm going to be writing in my home church asking for Uber Eats gift cards and bail money. I would not be taking a moment to share my heart about the local church. But that's exactly where we find this old wise apostle this morning. And he's, he's been arrested for spreading the message and work about who Jesus is. And he's taking a moment to share his heart with fellow Christians who are gathering in the name of Christ in, around the region of Ephesus in his day. And right off the bat, I want you to notice something before we read our sermon text. I want you to take note that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church. He's not writing to Metropolitan Baptist Church. He's not writing to Greenhouse Church. He's not writing to Crossway Church. He's not writing to First Lutheran Church or First Methodist or First Baptist Church of Weston. He is writing to the church. He is writing to the people of God who are gathering in the name of Christ during his day. He's writing to black Christians and white Christians, Republican Christians and Democrat Christians, Pacific Islanders, Native Americans. He's writing to Pentecostals, to Methodists, to Baptists, to Lutherans. He's addressing the people of God, people who have placed their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and are seeking now to follow after him. And here's what he's saying beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians 4. Read with me from here. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has appointed it. That's why it says when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower earthly region? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then he says this, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves or blown here and there by every wind of teaching or by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body is joined together and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And like I said, I don't really have three points. What I want to do is have a conversation around those 16 verses. And we're not going to look at them verse by verse, but we're going to have a conversation about what Paul is getting at here in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And if we're okay with it, we're going to believe that in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12, it says that the word of God is living and active. So if there's encouragement that needs to come and touch your heart this morning, let's believe that the Holy Spirit's going to bring encouragement. If there's repentance, if there's conviction, that needs to happen as a result of the hearing of God's word. Let's trust that there's going to be conviction and repentance. Is that okay with you, church? Amen. All right, but for some context, as we jump in here, we've got to understand something real fast. We've got to understand that the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are filled with doctrine. They're filled with theology. They're filled with rich and deep theological truths. Let's just give a quick overview The first three chapters of Ephesians are filled with truths such as we've been made rich in God's blessing through Jesus Christ. We've seen that we as Christians, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, our minds have been opened up to understand the breadth and the knowledge of God and that God has demonstrated his power in Christ. We've seen that we've moved from death into new life and that is our shared story as the people of God. And then we've seen that the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done is not just now for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. It's for the entire world. And now on the back end of all of that, doctrine that I just gave a real fast overview of, on the back end of all of this rich theology and these deep truths about Christianity, Paul now moves into praxis. He now moves and he's answering the question, okay, so like what is this all for? What does good theology produce? What does good doctrine produce? What is Christianity all about if we claim to follow Jesus Christ? And if we can go back to this idea of having just an honest family conversation real quick this morning, I'm concerned that as I look at the churches across South Florida and the churches of our nation is that we've created a people who are known more for what they are against rather than what they are for. We've created a church for every kind of subculture, a community of like-minded people, people who can explain who Jesus is, even tell you what that means for them in their life, but they can't seem to get along with other Christians who have different ideas about politics, about music, about science, about baptism, about the end times, just to name a few things. You see, these people, though, they're filled with doctrine. They're filled with theology. They, they, they know things. They can argue the faith. However, as we're going to see this morning, is that doctrine without demonstration is dead. It's useless. We're going to see that our behaviors actually follow our beliefs and that our identity, who we are as sons and daughters of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is actually the commonality and the fuel that propels the work of God forward. And it just hit me that I think we accidentally came up with three points. See, I can't even get out of me as we did. (laughs) If I tried. So Paul was opening up our passage this morning and he's saying, therefore, and I had a seminary professor say, every time you see a therefore in the Bible, you should ask, why is it therefore? So therefore, now on the back end of all of this rich truth, all of this theology, all of this explanation about Christianity, he says, now I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Make every effort effort to pursue the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace you see the church even even the movement of church united we're good at talking about unity the church has a fantastic talk game we're really good at brand management we know how to say it we know cool taglines we can market it we can get t-shirts we'll send you a mailer you bring your kids and we'll have a good time we know how to market something in the church See, we can even talk about it. We, we, we can argue our faith. We can have all the right answers. But if our walk doesn't match our talk, if the watching world sees us as divided, as angry, filled with conspiracy theories that lead us to this hopeless and pessimistic view of the world, they're going to continue to ask, what good is that faith? Why well, don't want to be a part of that. Friends, I don't care if you quote Pew, Barna Lifeway, U.S. News World Report, all the research is showing that the next generation, our, our lost friends, neighbors, and coworkers are looking at the church. And they're going, what good is that at all? What is it then that can help us? What can bring us together and urge us to pursue the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? You see, Paul here in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, he seems to suggest that our behavior follows what we actually believe. They expose what we actually believe. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And he's using this word walk in the original Greek. My name is Eddie Copeland. I know it doesn't scream Greek, but I was actually born and raised in Athens, Greece. So I got to give you a little Greek. He's using this original word walk in Greek as a metaphor to the Christian life. He's talking about the holistic experience of a Christian. He's actually talking about your character, your conduct. He's not talking about how you show up on your front stage persona. He's talking about your backstage reality. He's using this word walk. He says walk worthy of the calling that you have received. If I look at the church today, I see so many gifted communicators. I see people flocking to churches following these capital L leaders. But when you get with these leaders, you don't have to Google the headlines just to find this out. You realize that they're front stage gifting. What they present to you front stage is nothing like who they are in the backstage. You see, counselors call this phenomenon cognitive dissonance. I wrote my master's thesis on spiritual abuse and disillusionment in the evangelical church. There's like 12 sermons in that. Maybe one day I'll come back and preach that. But cognitive dissonance is the hardest thing for the human brain to carry. We are not designed to carry dissonance. Dissonance is simply experiencing something one way when we know it should be another and you see, there's all this talk about uh, the next generation's leaving the faith and they're deconstructing. Who's here the, who, Who's here? heard the word deconstruction? Anybody? Yeah, a lot of people talk about deconstruction these days. But let me tell you this, just a little quick aside. Deconstruction always follows a pattern. It starts with cognitive dissonance. It starts with experiencing the people of God one way when you know deep down it should be another. And that dissonance, when left unchecked, leads to disillusionment. And if we don't talk about disillusionment, that's the fork in the road moment that leads leads us either to a deconstruction of our faith and walking away, or it leads us to deeper discipleship. And I think the question is that is that one is one before the church today. What are we going to do about our dissonance and our disillusionment that is filling the next generation, that is filling the dinner table and our kids' Instagram posts and what they're actually wondering about the church? See, the church... The people of God are meant to be a people who bring light and life to the world. Our salvation, our belief in Jesus' death and resurrection isn't a get-out-of-hell, get-out-of-jail free card or a box that we check on the back of a welcome card. No, 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 no. Our faith, our salvation is for the life and flourishing of the world. It's for the life and flourishing of Davy, of Sunrise, of Coral Springs or wherever God has planted you and your influence. Encountering Jesus is meant to produce these things called love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, or what this same Apostle Paul calls the fruits of the Spirit, just one book over in the book of Galatians. Y'all been looking at your series, following the hard sayings of Jesus. Following the hard sayings of Jesus means dying to yourself and having the Spirit enter into your life so it looks more and more like love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and the fruits of the Spirit. You see, good doctrine, good theology, Christianity produces the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. And now we're getting another look here this morning at what good doctrine, good theology produces. Paul says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. He's saying, Christian, follower of Jesus, your behaviors follow your beliefs. Your behaviors aren't apologetic or the proof of what you actually believe. Why? Because doctrine without demonstration is dead. Doctrine Christianity without love, without joy, without peace, without love and unity, without the fruits of the Spirit, is nothing more than a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. People don't want to hear it. Matthew 5.13 puts it this way. He says, you Christians, follower of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Good theology, good doctrine without demonstration, without life-altering, character-altering effects on our words and our actions is useless, and frankly, it's unattractive to the watching world. Our friends at Barna Research just last month, I was just with them, they just unveiled a national study where they surveyed our lost friends, neighbors, and coworkers, people that have yet to cross the line of faith or wouldn't identify as a Christian at all, and they found something really interesting. They found that 71% of our unsaved friends, neighbors, and coworkers are actually open to discussing the teachings of Jesus and his implications and those teachings' implications on their lives. In fact, 71% of them have a positive view of Jesus, yet only 9% have a positive view of a Christian in their life. You know what that is? Cognitive dissonance. of our friends are open to talking about Jesus. Only 9% have a positive view of a Christian. You see, you can have all the right answers. We can have the flashiest marketing. We can have the greatest Sunday morning experience. You can have seminary degrees. You can keep up with all the podcasts. You can read all the latest Christian living books or whatever. But if you're a jerk, if you're stingy, if your walk doesn't match your talk, The watching world is going to continue to say, yeah, no thanks, to the Christian faith. Friends, what we need in the church today, what we need in the church in South Florida, what we need in our own lives and in my own heart and my own life is a walk that matches our talk. We've got to wrestle with the Lord and ask, how can I die so that something new can live in me and in our communities? We need in the church today a people whose lives and whose gifting and whose character matches what they believe about who God is, about what he's done through Jesus and who they now are in light of his life, death, and resurrection. Why? Because there is one body, one Lord, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Here's the thing. You know when Christians behave badly, our unsaved friends don't make the difference. Oh, that's a greenhouse, or that's First Baptist Weston, or that's Calvary Chapel. They don't make the distinction of that. They don't know the difference. When they see us and our lives out of step with the character and conduct of what God has called us to be, they just make this men- mental check of, yeah, that's what I thought about Christians. Why, guys? Because we are hardwired as the people of God. We have the same story. We share a commonality. If you're here this morning and you've placed your life, you've placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a commonality that transcends race, politics, financial status, or anything else the world would use to divide us. We have moved from death into new life together. I was blind, and now I see. You were blind, and now you see. I was lost, and now we have been found together. This is our shared story. Guys, this is a story of grace, and grace is not something that you discover on your own. Grace is something that finds you. So now Paul is saying, in light of all of that, In light of your shared story, in light of your identity, in light of this doctrine and this theology, walk worthy of the calling that you have received or walk worthy of the grace that has found each and every one of us if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ and have placed our faith and trust in him. Because that is what unites us. Who Jesus is, what he's done for us on the cross, and who we now are as his sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords, more loved, accepted, and approved of than you could ever dare dream or imagine. This is what holds us together as the people of God. This is why we are called to make every effort to pursue the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We share the same Lord, we share the same baptism, we share the same body, we share the same hope, and we share the same faith in Jesus Christ as the other gospel-believing churches down the street. If I had time, I'd love to go around and talk to each and every one of you and ask you, what are the first three or four kind of words that jump to your mind when you hear the word Christian? And our friends at Barnett, that same study that I just quoted, actually asked that. But I'd imagine if I went and did that in this room, they'd be probably pretty popular things, right? We'd have some nice things to say about being a Christian. But our unsaved friends and neighbors here, are their top four words when asked, how do you describe Christianity in a word? Judgmental, top of the list. Hypocritical, second. Unloving, third. Political agenda, Fourth. That study goes on to find that a vast majority of unchurched Americans believe that church is more about organized religion than loving God and loving people. Let that sink in for a second. Friends, the watching world is making it clear that Christians aren't doing too well. Let me personalize this, that Eddie Copeland is not doing too well at living out the unity of the spirit, pursuing the bond of peace, being completely humble and gentle, patiently bearing with one another in love. Here's the curious thing. To be a Christian literally means to be Christ ones, to be his called out people, the ones who demonstrate and live out and build his kingdom here on earth. And what our non-believing friends and neighbors are saying is they see the people of God as so judgmental, so hypocritical, and so irrelevant rather than a united countercultural people living out their love for God by loving those around them, even those that have vastly different beliefs and opinions in them. But let's talk a little bit more about our shared story. You see, as we've talked about, our shared story, simply as Christians, means that I was lost. And now that I've been found, it means that I've been someone who has moved from death into new life. It means that I've moved from being an enemy of God to a son and a daughter of God through trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It means, if you're a Christian this morning, it means that you're not someone who's defined by your achievements or your failures your good works or your reputation, but by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. You see, to be a Christian changes everything because to be a Christian means I'm part of a new family. I'm part of God's family. I'm part of the body of Christ. And I've been given a new name. I've been given a new identity as a son and as a daughter of the King of Kings. I've been given a new heart. I've been given a new calling. I've been given gifting. And I've been given purpose, or what our text this morning says, I've been given a measure of grace. You see, to be a Christian means that you are a person who has been radically transformed by the love and grace found in Jesus Christ. It means that you look to Him as your Savior and your Lord, and we believe that our salvation is found in Jesus. But we got to ask the question, what is our salvation actually for? What is the church, what are the people of God actually for? I think for far too long we've been looking at our salvation only as a means of personal atonement, only as a means of like a get out of hell, get out of jail free card. And now I guess in response I go to church every Sunday and I get involved in a microchurch or I put my kids in youth group and I guess I don't cuss as much anymore. However, God's plan and purpose for salvation is part of a much bigger and grander story. In Revelation 21.5, we find God's promise that he is making all things new. And friends, you and I have a role to play in that story of redemption and restoration to the world. Our salvation is actually how South Florida is going to be transformed. Our salvation is how Davy is going to look a little bit more like heaven each and every day, a little bit more like heaven lived out on earth. However, for just a little bit of context, And in the spirit of keeping this family conversation going, if I can go off on just one quick tangent, I think that we as pastors and we as the church have have set you up and have propagated a model that is designed to fundamentally abandon this core gospel truth. I don't think we just need more pastors and more churches here in South Florida. I think we need thousands of gospel-saturated Christians, people who understand their vocation and the power of their influence deployed into every sector of the marketplace, bringing love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control to all of the places that our influence extends. And this idea comes right out of our text this morning. Look with me at verse 7. It says, To each one of us grace has been given, or the original would say gifts have been given. To each one of you, gifts have been given. You see, what John and I do Sunday after Sunday, or what your other pastors, your vocational staff pastors do Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, is not the Sunday morning show, the Sunday morning experience, the Instagrammable moment, let me go get my miracle, tweet about it, and go back to work on Monday. That is not what it means to be a Christian. You see, what John and I do every Sunday is to remind the people of God, to reorient you, to remind you back to who you are, who you belong to, and what that means for your cubicle on Monday. What that means is you stand in line at Starbucks. What that means is you get cut off in traffic. What that means when you argue with your neighbor who's putting up a fence you don't like, which is currently happening to me. (laughs) Our job is to remind you who you are and who you belong to. Or as it verse 12 puts it, to prepare the people of God for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And I love how Ephesians 1.23 in the message translation puts it. It says the church, the people of God, the church is Christ's body through which he speaks and acts and through which and by which he fills everything with his presence. The church God's people, you and I, are the means by which God is bringing his kingdom to the world. You and I, united together through the power of the Holy Spirit, is how God is filling everything with his presence. It's how he's filling our homes, our dinner tables, our streets, our office buildings, our mom meetup group at, at the park, our neighborhood association meetings, our standing in line at Starbucks, our schools, everything. You and I, the people of God, are how God is filling everything with his presence. Our salvation is for the life and for the flourishing of the world. And friends, I just mentioned, if I can go off on this tangent for a second, I think that we have set you up completely unintentionally to abandon this fundamental truth as the local church. Somehow and somewhere along the way, we started to believe that churches need to have more and more staff and more and more programs and programs to replace the programs that are going out of style and programs to reach these people and programs to reach these people. And we have forgotten that God's plan A and he doesn't have a plan B are the people of God in the pews. You are the program of the church. I'm not speaking against programs, but I'm saying we've gotten so, we got to reach them, and then we got to have this and that. And get, guys, we are how God is bringing redemption and restoration to the world. The people of God are the program of the church. We've made church and about being a Christian so much about just get them to church on Sunday. Invite, invite, invite. We've made it about the Sunday morning show and the Sunday morning experience. Let me just go get my miracle moment that we have forgotten the very reason we're here to start with. We aren't here for the lights. We aren't here for the music, the kids ministry, the youth group, or for any other reason. We aren't here because John's such a gifted communicator, which he absolutely is. We are here because we are God's people saved by grace for the life and flourishing of the world. And we gather to remember who we are. We remember who we belong to and we remember what that means. Because as the old hymn says, my heart is prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are hardwired to forget who we are and who we belong to. And we come here Sunday after Sunday to be reminded about that. but we have so elevated the role of pastors. And we've delegated ministry to just a select few groups of people that we ordain. And friends, listen, I come out of the Presbyterian tradition. There's no one that loves ordination and stuff more than that tradition. Trust me, I am not speaking against ordination. But somewhere along the way, we've created this sacred-secular divide that says, no, no, come on, Eddie, what you and John do on Sunday, that's more important than what I do as a stay-at-home mom or as a plumber or as a professional or as a postal worker. And this sacred-secular divide is killing the voice and the prophetic witness of the church. The scriptures this morning would actually support that. It would point us in a really different direction. It says, to some, to some to a select few if you look at the Greek. He gave the gifts of apostles, teachers, prophets, and evangelists, and pastors. But Christ gave us those roles to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. If you're here this morning and you've placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you've repented and turned from your old life and have run towards Jesus, you are the hope of Broward County. You are the hope of South Florida. You are the hope of Davy. You are the hope of your dinner table, your children, your workplaces. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you are the hope of the world. But for some reason, got to go back to my tangent here real fast. We've created this sacred secular divide that says, no, 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 Eddie, come on, man. What you and John do, you're called to ministry. I'm merely a blank. I'm a state-owned mom, an IT professional, a pastor, a postal worker, a plumber. Come on, man. Like, my job, sure, I'm a Christian, but my job is to make money and to give it to the church and give it to ministries because they're actually doing the work of God in the world. And friends, nothing could be further from the truth. If you're a Christian, you are called to full-time ministry. Let me say that again. If you're a Christian, you are called to full-time ministry. We are not called by God to withdraw from the world. We are called to engage the world, to run, to be the first responders to our community's lostness, pain, and brokenness around us because we, the people of God, is how he's filling everything with his presence. You're called to bring the kingdom, to bring the realities of the kingdom, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, patiently bearing with one another in love to every place your influence extends, right here, right now. You see, to be a Christian means you are part of God's family. You are his body. You're his hands. You're his feet. You're part of his redemptive story. The church, God's people, you and I are the body of Christ. We're his mouthpiece. We, we bear his image and witness to, to, to the watching world and the church has been given as a gift for the life of the world. And you see, the church maintains this hope. They maintain the hope of this coming redemption and restoration by living out and by demonstrating that hope and redemption right here, right now. And that hope shines brightest in unity. Our words matter. Our actions matter. Our silence matters. Our inaction matters. We are to be the hope of God scattered throughout the world for the life and flourishing of the world. You see, we need each other. It's part of our divine design. My right hand can't do what my left hand can do. My my feet can't function without my head. It was designed to be that way. We need each other. You see, this is why we can pray for First Baptist Weston down the street to double in size. This is why we can pray for Crossway Church just down the street to double in size. This is why we're not threatened by new church plants. We all bear Christ's image and witness, and we carry his identity as the people of God, as treasured sons and daughters. And the church is the only institution in the world that we move from an ecosystem to an ecosystem. We move from a place where it's about me to a place where it's about us about what God is doing in and through us. You see, to be a Christian means that we can demonstrate the extraordinary thing grace can do through ordinary sinful people. Why? Because we've moved from death into new life. Together we share one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one God and Father overall. And friends, as we start to close here, God knew that we could not achieve what he's called us to do on our own. See, no no matter how much you want to live this way, no matter how much you want to try harder, do more, pull yourself up by the bootstraps to try to live out the fruits of the Spirit in your life, you simply can't do it on your own, and you're in good company. Let's just real quick trace the Bible. Moses. Moses struck a rock when he was supposed to speak to a rock. He was a hard-headed guy, and he had a bit of an anger problem, and he pastored a hard-headed people. King David, David had a Bill Clinton in the Oval Office kind of problem. He left the throne a little bit worse than he found it. Jeremiah came and he was sent and he had some of the most articulate words and poetry along with Isaiah, but Jeremiah preached with his resignation papers in his back pocket. Isaiah came and he, what do we know about Isaiah? He said, for unto us a son is born and for unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders. But what do we know about Isaiah? He was a man of unclean lips. What can we say about Hosea? Hosea couldn't get his wife to show up to church on Sunday. But Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, you see all of these people tried to call and unite God's people and reorient them to who they are and who they belong to until about Matthew chapter one, you can almost hear God saying, forget it. I'm going to become a man myself. I'm going to come down from heaven. I'm going to stop giving people judges and prophets and priests and kings. I'm going to give them my son. I'm going to become the supply of my own demand. I'm going to live the life that they were called to live, and I'm going to die the death that they deserve to die as a result of their sin. Why? because what God calls you to do, he enables you to do, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, but because of who he is and because of what he has done for you on the cross and through his resurrection you see you and I are going to need humility to live out this type of unity that the apostle is getting at here we are going to need humility and we're going to have to understand that I'm going to offend you you're going to offend me y'all are going to offend each other your kids are going to offend each other but we need to pursue each other and be patient and bear with one another in love and forgive one another not once not twice but 70 times 7 over and over again because that's how the kingdom works That's how the kingdom goes forward. Why? because we aren't the church all by ourselves. We aren't the church who thinks the same way, votes the same way, dresses the same way, worships the same way, reads the same people. No, we are the people of God. And friends, we don't do theology all by ourselves. I'm way overeducated. We don't do theology all by ourselves. We don't need to know all there is to know. We don't know all there is to know about God on our own. We all have different experiences. We have different stories. And all of our experiences in our life stories have caused us to put a little different emphasis points on different types of doctrines within the Christian faith I've been educated by a lot of dead white men who've shaped the places where I put emphasis on my theology but I need the voices and you need the voices of dead and living minorities who don't emphasize the same doctrinal points that I do why? because that's the body of Christ there's one body one Lord one spirit one hope one faith, one baptism. Friends, I promise we're going to close now. But can I just humbly submit to you that we've practiced a brand of Christianity that emphasizes the saving of the soul but neglects the condition of the body of Christ. I'm all for saving souls. Guys, what it means to be a Christian is to spread the good news about who Jesus is. But We emphasize the saving of the soul. We neglect to ask the question and the implication of that salvation for the rest of the people of God. You see, we've we've demonized Republican Christians, Democrat Christians, mask wearing Christians, rich Christians, poor Christians, ethnic Christians, minority Christians, female Christians, or any other member of the body of Christ who doesn't look like us, think like us. And friends, it's gotten us to where the church is today. And why am I taking a little bit longer to belabor this point? Because only 3% of South Florida identifies as an evangelical Christian. We've got work to do. We've got to stop fighting with each other. We've got to start celebrating one another. As our worship leader reminded us, we've got to celebrate what God's doing because he's doing something new in our lives. He's doing something new in our communities. And friends, we've got to be reminded about who we are and who we belong to. Why? Because anything else is unattractive to the watching world because this type of division that we experience together causes us to remain as infants tossed back and forth by every clickbait article, Fox News alert, or breaking CNN article that comes our way. We've allowed ourselves to be blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunningness and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming rather than speaking the truth about who God is, what he's done for us, and who we now are together in light of his love. So what is the hope of our unity? How are we ever gonna overcome our divisions together? And here's the last thing I'm gonna say this wise old African-American pastor named Doug Logan once told me. He says, I'm going to tell you how you and I are going to become one. Because on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, that emblem of suffering and shame. There they put nails in my Jesus' hands and they put a spear in his side and a crown of thorns on his head and he died. He died until death died. He died, as this old black pastor told me, until he rocked and reeled like an old drunken man. But he didn't die for corporate greed or white evangelicalism. He didn't die for wealthy suburbs or poor hoods. He didn't die for black Christians or white Christians, Hispanic Christians or Asian Christians. He died for us all. He died for you and me. He died to make the ground at the cross level so when we meet God, we've gone through one door, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one hope, and one Father overall because friends, that is how the gospel works. Friends, as we close, I'm going to invite you if you're a christian this morning i'm gonna invite our prayers partners up here if you're a christian this morning and you need to ask god to, to 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 repent of some unforgiveness that you're harboring maybe you're at odds with someone in this church maybe that you're at odds with another church maybe you didn't leave your old church right maybe you need to come and ask god to meet you to heal you so that as much as it depends on you scripture says be at peace with all people Maybe you need healing from a past church experience. Maybe you need God to ask you, Lord, do something supernatural in my life. Cultivate the fruits of the Spirit. Cultivate love, joy, and peace. Lord, give me a patience. Give me a forgiveness that transcends anything that I could do on my own power. And if that's you, I invite you to come and receive prayer. But maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, like I've, man, I've never heard anything like this before. Like I, I was just exploring Jesus. But friends, can I tell you? If you want to meet Jesus, we would love to talk with you about Jesus. We would love to talk with you about the man who took a broken mess like me and turned me into something beautiful, turned you into something beautiful because you experienced what life looks like. You've experienced what dying to yourself looks like so we can turn to Jesus and find life and find hope and find the power to live a life that is so countercultural and so attractive to the watching world. God wants to do that in your life. And if you've not trusted in him, I invite you to come forward and talk and pray with someone who would love to introduce you to Jesus. Friends, would you pray with me and could we ask God to meet us in this place as we sing and as we pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you as your children, sons, We're sitting on the lap of our good father, a father who loves us more than we could ever dare dream or imagine a father that is looking down at us from heaven, not angry, not upset, but beaming with joy. Can't imagine that we're his. He's overjoyed. Lord, it's in that spirit that we come before you and we say, God, I need you. I need you to speak to me, God. I need you to move in my heart. I need you to move in my life, Lord. I want to be known as a person, as an ambassador, kingdom. I want my dinner table. I want my kids. I want my workplace cubicle. I want my driving. I want my mouth. I want the things that I post on social media, the things that I like or reshare. I want it to reflect the fruits of the Spirit. Lord, would you do that? Lord, would you unleash the army, the sleeping giant that is your people here in South Florida and let them run as the first responders to our communities, lost as pain and brokenness? But Father, would you start with me? Would you start with us? Would you have your way with us? Show us where we need to repent. Show us where we need to turn. And Lord, for some of us, would you illuminate our hearts for the first time towards you? Could we meet you for the first time this morning and discover that we're beloved sons and daughters of the King of Kings?